The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Now, last week was a wild one for the United States, but also for Russian stocks. Between individual names and ETFs getting halted by exchanges, we had major providers like MSCI, FTSE Russell, and the S&P removing listings from their indexes. That sparked a lot of debate about what qualifies as investable or uninvestable right now. We'll talk about it and what it means for your portfolio, plus more on how to grapple with rising inflation. Here's my conversation with Dave Matza. He's the head of product at Direxion. Jim Davalos is the research analyst and portfolio manager at Horizon Kinetics. And my old friend Ben Johnson is director of global exchange-traded fund research for Morningstar. Dave, uh, you managed the Direxion Russia bull two times shares ETF. That's a mouthful, but it provides two times the exposure to a market cap-weighted index of Russian companies. Well, I talked to you last week. You were going to halt trading on March 11th, but the NYSE did it for you. They halted trading of your fund and two others on Fridays. Tell us a little bit about how you and the ETF industry are reacting to what is essentially the forced closure of that fund. Yeah, exactly. If we take a step back, we have two concurring forces that are happening at the same time. On one hand, we know that local equity markets in Russia are unable to be transacted in. They've been closed uh, now for some time. So the actual ability to price a security that's not trading uh, is very difficult. Um, so even though the weights in many uh, larger emerging market uh, ETFs and indices for Russia are small, Russian-specific ETFs, of course, are going to be larger. So in those cases, the uh, NYSE, uh, as an exchange, made the decision to actually uh, uh, halt the trading of those particular securities because their prices were so disconnected from the potential price of a Russian security. Who can say uh, what a particular company should be valued at if you can't trade uh, and an investor can't transact? Yeah, you know, Ben, um, it seems like, and I, I was talking to Dave about this and you too, we, we, it seems like we're seeing a, the retreat of globalization played out in the investment space. I know Russia is a very special situation. We have a war situation, but we've talked about this for a long time, you and I. There are broader concerns about global investing. What about other regimes that are not at war, but we do not approve of, like China? You and I have talked about this in the past. Are parts of the world starting to become uninvestable? Well, Bob, what comes next is anybody's guess. And in the meantime, what you see is that the index manufacturers are, are really playing by the rules. What you see outlined in certain chapters of their rule books is, is exactly what's being executed right now. When the underlying markets are closed, all bets are off on these securities, not just in Moscow, but in London and New York, they can't get a good price. And index providers depend on having good prices. The asset managers that are trying to track those indexes certainly don't want to track an index that doesn't have prices for its underlying constituents. So the indexes are playing by the rules. The asset managers are trying to play by the rules. Some of these rules specifically that are unique to the asset managers to whether or not they can transact, they can't, and they can't dispose of any securities that they can't actually make an economic transaction in. So we're going to be making some things up as, as we go, and, and we're really in uncharted waters here right now. 
Yeah, I, I certainly agree that the index providers are playing by the rules, but I, I'm interested in the broader philosophical implications of what we've been discussing, not just with, uh, with Russia, but even with China and other areas of the world. So, so Dave, some have argued that China's autocratic, autocratic actions should be sufficient to convince some investors that China itself isn't investable any longer. Uh, U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, we have had him on many times. He's led calls to convince pension funds, uh, particularly government pension funds, to sell their China stocks. While index providers have declined to delete China from the global indexes, it's not the same thing as Russia, they've made it clear that if there was demand for an index of global stocks that excluded China, it could be easily provided at this point. So you, you, you get my point here. We, we're debating very broad issues about inclusion and investability at this point that we were never debating two or three years ago. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I think individuals right now, of course, need to make a decision either the, by themselves or with an advisor to say if a particular country or security uh, is right for their portfolio. But if you even take a step back from that, we have been in an environment where for years we were being told to diversify away from the U.S., away particularly from uh, the U.S. FANG stocks and the mega cap gro growth that have dominated indices. And the area people have been going to is emerging markets because they've been so out of favor and so inexpensively valued relative to their history. And that's all really changed. So I think what you're seeing here is that the door is potentially open for index providers to take greater action than many people had assumed. To Ben's point, much of this is laid out uh, in rule books and guidelines, things of that nature. But most people don't expect, of course, to wake up and find a war situation. Uh, but the question I would have, and I would advocate uh, investors large and small to think about, is what actually is the potential playbook and path forward? Uh, this is not to, to say that we're going to see a particular action that China may take or not. It's just simply, if that occurs, I think we know that index providers aren't going to wait around anymore uh, to necessarily be told what to do, and they might be moving faster than asset managers. Yeah. So, Ben, what about that playbook? Is it different? You know, he's right. For years, we were told we should diversify. We talked about how to lay it out. Now we're told sort of maybe not diversify. What will the new global investment order look like? The, the old order we, you and I, grew up with, simply investing globally by market capitalization, it may not have resonance for a lot of investors anymore, even if they just remain in index funds. Well, in light of certain current circumstances, Bob, I, I think it might not resonate in the case of broadly diversified market cap weighted exposures to emerging markets where you see China really looming large and, and larger than ever, in fact. And the direction of travel in recent years is to, been, to be to include more exposure to China by way of, for the first time, onboarding exposure to onshore listings of Chinese equities. I think this is a moment that's going to give many investors pause. We've already seen index providers respond by offering emerging markets ex-China benchmarks. There's countless different benchmarks out there. There's funds now that track them. And there are some clever ways beyond just broad-based market cap weighted that you see index providers and ETF providers bring exposures to bear to investors that invest in emerging markets but keep a close eye on some of the issues that we're living through in this very moment. And I can mention tickers like FRDM, a freedom-weighted index that has yeah. not had exposure to either China or Russia. You look at another fund like uh, Wisdom Tree's XSOE. Now, that's got exposure to some of these markets, but 
specifically looks to remove state-owned enterprises from the mix. So yeah. you know, there's no sort of limit to the creativity, the dynamism, the options that index manufacturers and fund sponsors have to try to navigate some of these issues. Yeah, Perth Toll at the FRDM is a friend of, uh, friend of ours, a friend of uh, ETF Edge. Uh, ben, try to explain something to, to people who don't quite understand how these ETFs work, what, what these funds are going to do with these Russian stocks. You know, the Telegraph in London has reported that investors have a billion pounds trapped in the Russian stock market. It's amazing that the index providers like MSCI have simply decided the value of these Russian assets are now zero. They've made zero. So with a fund like, I don't know, iShares Emerging Market ETF, the EEM, that's indexed to MSCI's Emerging Market Index. It has roughly a 3% weighting to Russia. They now have a bunch of stocks, iShares Emerging Market ETF, that have a zero value all of a sudden. Can these ETFs sell their holdings if and when the Russian market reopens? How, how does this work? Well, there are a variety of things that have to happen first, Bob. For the time being, all they can really do is sit on their hands and keep up to speed on developments as, as things continue to change on the ground. Uh, so until the Russian exchange or, or the listings of any of the ADRs or GDRs begin trading hands again, they simply can't do anything. They've marked down, in many cases, the value of these positions to zero. They continue to sit in the portfolio. The owners of these funds will have a claim on those underlying securities in the event that they become liquid, that they become tradable again. There could be a bit of a pop. Certainly, you would expect a pop uh, beyond a value of zero. And at that point in time, those securities are going to be liquidated from these index portfolios because they're no longer in the index. So you'll see a little bit of a blip in terms of positive tracking error. Investors will get out of those securities. And in all likelihood, Russian stocks will be in the penalty box for the foreseeable future off on their own uh, until the index providers can get comfortable mainlining them again, if that ever happens. Yeah. I want to move on and talk about the current hot investment idea, playing the inflation card. I want to bring in Jim Davalos. He's the portfolio manager and research analyst over at Horizon Kinetics. He runs the Horizon Kinetics Inflation Beneficiaries ETF. The symbol is INFL. Uh, you know, Jim, you started this fund 13 months ago. We've already got a billion dollars in assets in this. Uh, it, this is companies expected to benefit from inflation. You have mining, transportation stocks, real estate companies in here exchanges. But you've emphasized whenever I've talked to you about that, that we don't just buy them willy nilly. You want asset light kind of assets. Can you explain what that is and, and what's the philosophy of INFL? Sure. So I think that it's pretty easy with kind of first derivative logic to say, hey, who can raise prices with inflation? I'm no expert, but I would say Apple can probably raise the price of their iPhones. But a lot of companies are going to have expenses that are as much or greater than they can grow revenue. So that's why it's really important to have a hard asset, so a physical, tangible asset that can benefit from inflation driving your revenue. But absent that, uh, those fixed costs or the high capital intensity that drive a lot of your costs of goods sold in SG&A. So in other words, while your revenue grows with a lot of these companies, your margins are also going to expand. So the companies benefit twofold whereas a lot of other companies are going to have a lot of trouble with the cost side. 
Yeah. Now you own, there's certain companies that make a lot of sense. You own land companies, for example. So owning land would be an, a logical asset. Uh, Texas Pacific, you own a bunch of energy companies uh, that are in this fund. But you also own stock exchanges. You own yeah. a significant <laughs> investment, for example, in Deutsche Börse. Yep. Now, what's the, uh, why is that an inflation-linked uh, asset in your mind? So if you think about it, at the end of the day, inflation is a great uncertainty on the market. And financial exchanges are basically, they are the marketplace for selling and buying risk. And so one of the biggest drivers of volume on exchanges, whether it's equities, fixed income, rates, commodities, is volatility, uncertainty. So right now, all of these exchanges, whether you're talking about the U.S. exchanges, the ICE, the CME, the Deutsche Börse, the ASX, they're all printing record revenues. And what does it really cost for them to have all of that extra revenue? I mean, we're sitting here on the NYSE floor, but for them to do another trillion dollars of revenue volume at the, at the ICE, they plug in another computer mainframe. So it's really a toll booth on financial activity and we've all kind of been spoiled by 10 years of low volatility that has suppressed volume. So I think that the margins and the revenues are going to really go up across the global exchange complex with inflation. Yeah, and that makes some sense. So market makers, for example, also would do very well. People who would benefit from volatility, high levels of trading, for example, would make a lot of sense. You know, uh, Ben, th this is the, uh, the ETF theme of the moment. Uh, you and I have watched all of this go through for many years. We remember pot ETFs, they had their day. Then we had Bitcoin equity-related ETFs, they had their day. Then we had thematic tech ETFs in 2020. 2021. Now it's inflation ETFs. Um, and, you know, this is the beauty of ETFs. Uh, but it also means investors chase themes that get a, a rush of money, then, you know, fizzle out, either because people get bored with them or they don't pan out. Um, is it good to allow investors to chase these kinds of essentially fads is what they are right now? Yeah. So, Bob, taking stock right now on the ETF menu, we currently have a deflation ETF. We've got a number of inflation ETFs. There's a stagflation ETF that isn't filing. So we've got all our various flation scenarios covered. And the problem, more often than not, is what you see is that oftentimes the contents of that portfolio don't necessarily align with that objective or that theme. Now, that's not to say that there aren't thoughtful sponsors that, that get things trued up. And I think we've got a case here where there's a good degree of thought that's been put into it. What's more challenging still is just to get the timing right. So by the time most of these funds come to market, we've long since sort of bought the rumor. Many people have sold the news. And all that's left to do is really short sell the thematic ETF because many investors for some period of time now have set themselves up to be a victim of their own behaviors. We've seen time and time again buying exactly at the wrong time when all of this enthusiasm, all of these expectations have already been priced in to the securities that are represented in these portfolios. So investors need to, to think twice, I think, when they begin to approach these things. Uh, you to borrow from John F. Kennedy when it comes to inflation or what have you, the best time to, to fix your roof is when the sun is shining. Uh, and right now, as it pertains to inflation, the, the sun is certainly not shining. It, it, the time to batten down the hatches was a long time ago. There is a behavioral, he's, what Ben is saying is there's a behavioral economics aspect of this whole thing that people rush in towards the shiny new object, as we like to call it, and suddenly get interested. With that said, you've done very well. What, when did this happen? January last year, right? As I recall, I had you on right as that 
came yep. on last year. Uh, and now you've got almost a billion dollars in, uh, in assets under management. 1.1. 1.1. Right yeah. And so it does work. <laughs> it does. We and might say, we might, Ben and I might sit here like, you know, ETF philosophers. I call Ben the ETF philosopher um, because he is. Um, and I agree with him that shiny new objects, you should be careful about them. But they do work. Yeah, they do look, get assets. Yeah, and, and I don't disagree with what Ben said at all. I, I think that there's a big nuance between beta where you're making a binary bet on CPI, on a commodity, on interest rates. That is for traders and that's not something that I do. What I've designed is a full cycle portfolio where these businesses, I think they're gonna generate very strong economic returns under the, sta the pre-inflation status quo. So our returns on equity, 20, 30, 40, 50 plus percent. And so there's not a binary bet on inflation. You'll do just fine if it continues, but in, to the extent that there is lasting inflation, you're gonna do very well in these stocks. And so what I call this is a full cycle or multi-cycle way to play a structural shift in the economy that has to do with a lot of these hard assets versus kind of the service dominance of the past decades. Yeah. Hey, Dave, you have a, a lot of familiarity uh, at DirectShawn with leverage and inverse uh, ETFs. Um, speaking of things that might be a, a uh, a hot topic in the future. You've had a filing for uh, single stock ETFs. Uh, I know it's a filing and it's not trading yet, but can you give us a little uh, insight into what you're thinking here and what kind of single stock ETFs you're filing for? Yes, uh, we, we filed for a series of uh, leverage and inverse ETFs on single securities. Now, I can't speak much further than, than what has been uh, uh, put, put out in that particular filing for, for regulatory reasons, but you're absolutely right. Um, in my opinion, there's innovation that can still occur in the ETF industry uh, that we've seen over the years into different areas. ETFs were launched in a humble way just for just for a diversified portfolio of equities, and now it's in fixed income commodities. We're talking about thematics and inflation solutions. So we're always looking for ideas to provide traders, especially for the, our particular business. And these are tools. Most of our ETFs are tools for traders, people who can manage their portfolios on a daily basis to make decisions either to amplify exposure or to hedge other risks in their portfolios. So can you tell us what stocks you filed for right now? And what, so it, this would be, Amazon's one of them, right? There's, an, there's, an, there's a filing for Amazon, right? Correct, so uh, there's uh, filings for uh, Amazon, Meta, Tesla, among others. So really a core, uh, large, liquid uh, securities uh, that, that, that have been filed for at this time. And these would offer what? Leverage and inverse? Be a little more explicit. What, what I, this ETF for Amazon, for example, it would be two times levered. What, what's, what would you, what's the filing for? Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's a two, uh, uh, each particular filing has uh, uh, a, a pair. So a two times on the upside, which is called a full fund, a two times in the bear, a bear side, a bear fund. And then also, just a 1x bear fund. So that's just the inverse exposure. It's important yeah. to remember that like all leverage ETFs, these would be uh, uh, done on a daily basis. So really intended to be tools right. for traders, both to amplify or again, to hedge that exposure. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first, yours would, would be the first one in the United States that would be single stock ETFs. They, there are, they do exist in Europe, right? But I, I, there isn't any here in the United States that are single stock, right? That's correct. There's none in the, in the market today, but there is, uh, if you were to look overseas to, to the European usage market, there's actually a, a, a more than a handful of ETFs uh, that do similar, uh, similar, have similar objectives, I should say, 
uh, that trade in that market. Um, but as we know, um, there are uh, other, whether we're talking about cryptocurrencies or others, there are actually markets that are actually ahead of the U.S. Uh, ETF market, um, whether it's, again, Canada or Europe, that we really hadn't seen in the past few years. So um, they're really making innovations, and in some cases, we're now following. So, Ben, here we go. This is sort of the ultimate thematic tech ETF, a, a bet on a single large tech stock, whether it's Amazon or Tesla or several of the ones that, uh, that Dave has, has filed on. What, what do you think of this idea? Yeah, I mean, I, I would characterize a lot of what we've been seeing lately, Bob, at the margin uh, in the ETF space uh, as it pertains to, to product development like this, as it pertains to the trading volumes that we saw last week and some of the Russia-focused ETFs. This is, this is really the late Jack Bogle's worst nightmare regarding ETFs <laughs> manifest, that they, they become you know, a strictly speculative tool. You know, we've come a, a very long way um, from the origins of the space. And that's not to say that they don't have uh, a use case for, for certain investors for speculation. Um, but you know, for your average investor, you know, I, I wouldn't touch these things with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not trying to drag you into this, Jim, but Jack Vogel didn't even like an S&P 500 ETF because he thought it would encourage speculation and uh, intraday trading, as, as Ben aptly points out. Imagine what he would think of this at, at, at this point. I mean, it's really rather remarkable uh, uh, development. But that's logically, if people want to do it, fine, I guess, is the right answer, correct? Despite what Jack would think, and those of us who are Jack Vogel disciples might nod our heads in agreement, but... People use these for a lot of different reasons. They size them appropriately. People might have underlying exposures that they want to hedge or enhance, so... I think it's all about using it intelligently versus using it speculatively. And like everything in this world, size it appropriately. Yeah. And now, of course, uh, Ben, we're going to have to explain what it means to have to adjust on a daily basis <laughs> for these funds. Like, remember what we did three, four years ago uh, and, and, and how we had to do it. We're going to have to go back to that playbook explaining how you don't actually get, you know, if it's up 25 percent this month, you don't actually get it because of the daily uh, adjustment. And Dave, you're going to have to be explaining that a lot, too. I suppose, in the near future. Uh, do we have any sense, Dave, of w when these might be able to begin trading, or is that too far in the future to figure out? Yeah, I think that's a bit too, uh, too far in the future to be able to, to provide any certainty around that. But again, you raise a great point. To me, whether we're talking about single beta ETFs or ETFs that are uh, intended for tactical traders, which these products would be, it's all about education, understanding how the products work, what your exposure is, and in particular, if we're talking about tools that are for trading, to have the ability to make a buy and a sell decision on a daily basis. And if that's the case, you know, I recommend investors doing their due diligence, getting their education, because these can be tools for traders uh, that can be very powerful for them if used appropriately. And we really, again, advocate for folks to do that due diligence, do the education on our website or other sources to understand that. And if they're not right for you, don't use them. Uh, again, yeah. if they're not right, if that's not your potential, stay away and look for other options to build diversified portfolios. Yeah. Well, uh, Dave, let us know when it's coming, and we'll have you on, and we'll explain what it, what it means to reset on a daily basis. I love doing the math on those kinds of things. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast today. 
I'll be continuing the conversation with Ben Johnson from Morningstar. Ben, thanks very much for staying around with us. Um, I'm wondering um, what, if any, more lasting damage we might be seeing to ETFs and mutual fund investing. I, I see this morning um, we have a fairly small fund, the Two Korean Wheat Fund, which essentially invests in wheat futures, um, was halted early on, and it was declared that there would um, essentially no longer be any creations of new shares, although they would be, you could still redeem them. Can you briefly explain what that means? It, 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 does that mean there's a, a, a problem now with determining whether the fund is really trading at the net asset value? What, what does this mean for the investors when you halt creations of, of, a, of a fund? Yeah, it, it's a good question, Bob. And, and what it means in, in this instance is that there's not enough shares of this particular ETF out there on the market to meet current demand. It's seen a ton of money flood in as wheat prices have shot higher. The problem is, is that the fund can only own wheat futures in, in a certain amount, at least as it stands today. So it's bumped up against that limit. It's had to close the doors to any new money coming in until it can have that limit raised. And what you see, just based on the supply-demand dynamics for the shares as they're trading hands back and forth on exchange, is that they're going to come untethered to an extent from the underlying value of the portfolio. Typically, what you see in this scenario is that the price of the ETF shares will trade above its net asset value. It'll trade at a premium until such a time as this situation can resolve. They can take greater positions in wheat futures, and they can issue new shares to address this supply-demand yeah. imbalance for shares of the ETF. So the key point here is there's a limit to how many futures. They can't go out and just corner the wheat futures market with an ETF, right? They're, they're, there's actually, in the perspective, it states how much, what the limit is they can own. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is unique to the fund. There are also going to be limits at the level of the exchange. And you know, we've seen similar instances of this in the past with oil futures funds. Actually, iShares Gold ETF, IAU, at one point in time, very briefly hit its limit on its ability to, to issue new shares. Um, so there's, there's a lot of devils in those details that are outlined in these funds' prospectuses that really don't come to light until we run into situations right. like this. And this is not done to mess around with people's heads. It's done for a very important reason. You don't want any fund cornering the market anything, essentially. I mean, it's really done for investor protections. You don't want this to become... So these things to become so big that they're systematically dangerous for the markets. Is that right? Abs absolutely. And, and I think especially in an in instance where at the end of the day, what we're talking about, what the underlying is, is food. Right. So we don't want to see a scenario where speculative interest in, in wheat is in any way disproportionately affecting the prices for wheat around the world. I think the, the key point here is there's a very important reason why people actually want to put limits on the amount that these funds can hold. And so there's a, there's a public interest reason why uh, they, they hit the limit. We'll keep an yeah. eye on that. Let me ask you about fund flows. This has been such a wacky start to the year. Does anything in terms of where the money is going strike you? More, ridiculous amounts of money into or out of bond funds, particular stock funds. What, what strikes you as interesting uh, after two months of the year? 
Yeah, so looking at the flows data through February, what really jumps off the page is the fact that Vanguard has just been absolutely relentless. So through the first two months of the year, Vanguard has taken $26 billion more into its ETFs than its next nine largest competitors combined. And a lot of that money is flowing into the very basic plain vanilla, every bit as exciting as watching paint dry and right. grass grow at the same time funds, Vanguard Total right. Stock Market well, Index, their S&P 500 ETF, their value ETF, which is part of a right. broader rotation we're seeing into value and away from growth. But, but why Vanguard? Well, I mean, why not BlackRock? Why not Schwab? I mean, what is it about Vanguard that keeps getting so much plain vanilla money? Well, you got to look at the makeup of its client base, right? Vanguard grew from you know, the, the grassroots on, on up, right? From individual investors and more recently um, making inroads into the advisor market, into the institutional market. And you know, what you see is that Vanguard investors tend to live, tend to exemplify the, the Vanguard mantra of you know, staying the course. Uh, you know, to quote the late Jack Bogle, invest we must. And um, in light of current market yeah. volatility, they're, they're sticking tight to that, to that script. Sure. Let me uh, ask you, you, this is a separate question, but I'm always interested in, in your active passive report. Um, every year, actually twice a year, you put out a report about how active fund managers are doing against their benchmarks. You just put out uh, the year-end 2021 report, I believe last week. And what's remarkable to me is how little the numbers actually changed. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a testimony uh, to how difficult it is to outperform the markets. And what's amazing to me is fund managers, after 10 years, the vast majority, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's at 85%, don't outperform their benchmarks after, after 10 years when things like survivorship are taken into account. Just can you summarize the, the findings of the report and, and what has this told, told us? You have been doing this for many, many years out at Morningstar. Yeah, so we've been doing it now for, it'll be just about seven years, our, our Morningstar Active Passive Barometer Report. And you know, what, what you see in the short term, Bob, is, is a lot of noise. So active managers' success rates can go up and down quite a bit over any given 12-month period, even over certain three-year periods. But as you go further back in time, the, the signal rings through. And the signal is, is it's tough to be an active manager. It's tough to survive uh, as a, a portfolio manager. What we see is over a long period of time, most funds don't necessarily fail. They just fail to survive, uh, which ultimately, if you look at their performance, it's also because they haven't performed very well. And even the ones that survive, most of them in most categories fail to do any better than an investor might get in terms of their returns from just a dirt cheap index portfolio. Um, so that comes through time and time again. You know, the other signal we see is that uh, survivorship is much lower among more expensive funds and success rates are much lower among more expensive funds. So you know, investors really, if they're going to partner with an active manager, need to keep a close eye on costs. Cheaper funds tend to do better. And they need to pick their spots because there are some categories where active managers have had an easier go of it than others. So if you look yeah. at US large caps, 
Yeah, that's awfully difficult. Most investors are best served in most cases to index in the U.S. large cap space. Yeah. But if you get into corners of the market like emerging markets, high yield bonds, bank loans, you name it, those are areas where you might be better off partnering with an active yeah. manager. Yeah, and uh, as Jack Bogle always used to say, if you choose active management, make sure it's low-cost active management. That's the key, and, and you've demonstrated that year after year with that active-passive report. Ben, thanks very much for joining us. I really do appreciate you sticking around. Uh, this is Ben Johnson, everybody, Director of Global ETF Research at Morningstar. And thank you for joining us on the ETF Edge podcast. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.